This is RDQI. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of RDQI. Lindsay is back with us this week to talk about something quite different than when she was last on the podcast, burnout. You know, fun fact, burnout actually led to the creation of RDQI. I experienced some major burnout over the last couple of years, and the odd thing is, is I didn't really understand that I was going through burnout because it was so different than I was led to believe. So in this episode, we want to give you a little insight into our different burnouts, and hopefully in doing so, help you navigate your own. This episode of RDQI is brought to you by Bob's Brussels Sprouts. We know your kids hate them, and everyone else does, but they're good for you. Good source of fiber and nutrients. Hand washed. Bob's Brussels Sprouts. Get Brussels. Hey Dave, have you ever experienced burnout before? Sure have. I sure have. What about you, Lindsay? Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe I have. How about you, Ryan? Yeah, right. Oh, I mean, definitely, <laughs> definitely experienced burnout before. But I mean, I think that's going to be part of most people's lives, unfortunately. It's highly likely we'll experience burnout, but I'm kind of curious. I mean, what do you mean? What was your burnout like, Dave? Well, interesting thing to bring up, right? Because I think the term gets overused quite a bit to just, it's, it's sort of like a hyperbolic way to describe stress. Oh, I'm so burned out right now. It just means, you know, you're, you're working hard. Mm-hmm. Um, which I kind of assumed that was sort of it too, until I really burned out. And it's a, it's a different animal entirely. I mean, I, you know, I was like, I went through a whole week of just like sleeping around the clock um, and just had, you know, my kind of, my brain just sort of shut down. It just, it couldn't do it anymore. And it's completely different from being stressed. Um, you know, when you're stressed, you can ha- kind of have like visceral, emotional, angry reactions, sad reactions. Burnout is just nothing. It's just no motivation to do anything, I think. I mean, that's how it yeah, was I mean, for me, sound, at least. It sounds like teetering on the edge of, you know, a depressed state, basically. Absolutely. I, I think it I think it can manifest in different ways because burnout, I think you're right that it gets thrown around. It's like, oh, I'm burnt out, I'm burnt out. But I think, I don't know if it's considered like a clinical term, but in high compassion fatigue slash burnout industries, burnout management is like a part of managing, you know, people and, and employees. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? So, okay. We were talking about this before the show. Mm-hmm. What is compassion fatigue? I've never heard that term before. Are you asking me? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not an expert in compassion fatigue, but I've worked in a high incidence of compassion fatigue uh, industry, which a lot of times that's like the helping professions. So medicine, social work, um, uh, like uh, nonprofit experiences some some compassion fatigue, and I worked in the veterinary medicine industry, and uh, there's a lot of compassion fatigue in that. And it's kind of you, the way it was described to me is you can't expect to work around water all the time and not get wet. So you can't expect to work around trauma all the time and not get accidentally traumatized kind of adjacent to the people you're working with or whatever you're working with. So compassion fatigue can be, you know, my job involves compassion. So by the time I get home, 
I don't have a whole lot of compassion left over for like my partner or my roommate. Um, but there's also, I mean, my understanding is there's another side to the coin of compassion fatigue, which is just, you know, we are experiencing some version of a global compassion fatigue with, you know, a pandemic going on and, and a lot of mm-hmm. tragedy happening constantly mm-hmm. to the point where the first time you were hearing about, you know, people dying from COVID or people in terrible situations, it was awful. And now it's just sort of washing over you like, okay, you know, a, another sad story. And I think that's that the change in that is sort of a, a, an example of compassion fatigue. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, <clears throat> I mean, this is a bit maybe of like a macabre example, but, um, you know, the first school shooting was a tragedy. The mm-hmm. last one was, I don't know, I didn't feel a blip. anything, right? Yeah. I, mean, I feel bad about not feeling anything, but yeah, you're just whatever. And that's cultural for like Americans. Well, that's a hundred percent. Like I have British friends who, uh, they were visiting and a school shooting happened while we were here, while they were here. And they were, they were completely again, like someone shot up a school. And I was like, yeah, you know, that thing that happens quarterly, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, right? like, like, and it's, and it's not funny, but it, it it's, I mean, it's, it is funny. It's black, black humor. I love that we went straight from comedy to this also very jovial, fun <laughs> subject, but um, yeah, but I mean, it, it's definitely, that's a great example, Dave. I think, there's cultural examples of compassion fatigue. Americans are just going to be less alarmed by shooting deaths. Mm-hmm. Generally, there was a shooting on my way driving here. There was a shooting on my way to get to the highway. And I, and I mentioned it to, to friends I saw earlier today and they were like, what? And I was like, Oh, it's just, it just held up my, my commute. Yeah, it was, there was a shooting and then there was cars yeah. everywhere. It was, and it's obviously tragic and I don't think I'm like a cruel person. And I, a part of me felt for whoever was involved in that, but I didn't spend a whole lot of, you know, mental energy on it because if I did, I live in Chicago. <laughs> that would that right. would be all that I would do. Yeah. You would be ruined. I mean, as a defense mechanism, just for your own, you know, your psyche for your own sake, you have to be able to kind of just brush those things off, or else, like, yeah, living in Chicago, if you couldn't handle shootings or like hearing about them, even you wouldn't survive. You wouldn't be a healthy person there. Um, well, I think that kind of under understates, uh, not understates, but underlines the what's behind compassion fatigue, right? The human brain just has a fixed capacity of compassion to give. And when we are, you know, when we have every single negative thing that happens in the world, you know, available at our fingertips, it becomes too much. And say, you know, something like similar with you're working in a, in a hospital or, or, you know, veterinary clinic and you're around people having the worst days of their lives all day long. Like your brain just at a certain point just says, Hey, if we're going to continue to survive, we're just not going to care about this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and it's, it's it, cause my, my mother was an RN and I would joke about how, you know, if we were sick when we were kids, she, she was a good mom. You know, if we were actually sick, she cared. But if we were that kid, like, oh, I don't know, my tummy hurts. She, I mean, I think a part of her was like, I saw a man die yesterday, you know, just like she wasn't as doting, I think, as the average mom. That being said, I think we got the best health care as children because my mom knew what was what, you know? Yeah. Um, but compassion fatigue, I knew what it was going into vet med. I, I knew about it. I knew I was entering, I vaguely knew that I was entering like a, a you know, a field that's kind of rough on, on, on the, your mental health. But it wasn't until um, there was like a, a, our hospital had a requirement to have someone come in to talk to us about our feelings 
once a year, <laughs> which probably wasn't enough. But uh, and we hadn't done it for like three years. And so it was finally happening at the time I was a manager. And I was like, OK, we got to make sure everyone's getting in here. And we're going to talk to this person who talks only to vet clinics about this thing which is just mental health in vet clinics it was very vague that like the title of the seminar and it was mandatory I was like everyone has to come on their break you get paid blah 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 and then as I was scheduling that I was kind of like Psh, whatever though you know this will be good for everyone but you know, we're really intense and we you know we we deal with all this tragedy and we're fine and then this woman comes in and she was kind of cheesy she was like hey guys you know back when i was a kid and like kind of making fun of how old she was and we we're like whatever and then she kind of brought the lights down and she starts telling a vague story about a neglected dog and she was just like uh, imagine yourself in a position like think of the last time you really felt for a client and we're like okay and she's kind of going along she's like okay now think about how you were feeling and how are your interactions that day and and she was going on and on and and all of a sudden she goes okay so we're gonna step back and we didn't know why and she turned the lights up and all of us were crying and I'm talking about people who like you know guys 50 year old veterinarians who've been in the industry for decades were crying and we're some of us are like robots and all of a sudden we're just all really feeling this and we didn't know that this was mm. kind of going on for us and then she proceeded to explain about how interpersonal conflict in in vet med is heightened and we're not communicating well because we're all kind of hurting all the time and we don't know how to deal with that so we end up snapping at each other and that was true you know if we had something awful happen which Vet med seems like it would be sad and euthanasia isn't that sad. It's always just kind of like the right thing to do and yeah. all that. But occasionally we would get something just tragic and it would bear out in how we interacted with each other. Hmm. And prior to that, everyone had always said, Yo, you know, women are attracted to this career. So it's a really catty job and people are really catty. And I don't think that's the case, but I think women are attracted to helping professions. Mm. And so you end up feeling for so many people or or animals or something and then you're kind of done with compassion for your coworkers. so if someone makes a st small mistake it's just you don't have a lot of forgiveness for that because you have bigger fish to fry um and that was like my first big exposure to compassion fatigue i hope that explained it a little bit dave like yeah definitely definitely and, and i think what's interesting is because i was talking to my wife about this beforehand um because she definitely experiences compassion fatigue. She was in the restaurant industry as a server, bar manager, et cetera, and now she's a nurse. Um, and, I, and I was asking her, I was like, because I've gone through some, let's say, traumatic work experiences. Dave, I'm sure you can think of a time when I was just a miserable shell of a human for about you know a short period of my life working for this one company. But I was selling advertising for like a tech firm, basically. That's what I was doing. So I wasn't, I wasn't caring for businesses, you know, the businesses I was working with. I mean, you could, you could string along an argument that I was really caring about their business succeeding. But let's be real. I was trying to hit my number. And so I was like, yeah. is that really compassion fatigue if I'm experiencing, you know, just burnout through work? Or is compassion fatigue something that's a little bit distinct? And I think what we kind of came to is... Burnout can happen for a number of reasons. Compassion fatigue is kind of like a subset of why burnout could occur. Yeah. Would you yeah, agree with I that, Lindsay? Yeah, I think all compassion fatigue can lead to burnout, but not all burnout happens as a result of compassion fatigue. Because you can be in a, in a job where you aren't working with people at all. And so your compassion isn't being, you know, like 
taken over by your workplace, but not working with people all the time probably could be a way to, you know, head into burnout if you're not interacting with enough people. And that would almost be like the opposite of compassion fatigue. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my, you know, personal kind of story of burnout, I don't think really has anything to do with compassion fatigue because I work in a, um, you know, a professional services field and I was just on an account, which was, uh, we, we just worked with a terrible, terrible client and they were just, you know, I, uh, I like to think that I, you know, pretty much try and see the good in everybody, even the really, uh, you know, hard to be around people, but these <laughs> people were all awful, awful human beings. <laughs> and every single day was just a struggle against these criminals. And were they actually engaging in criminal <laughs> behavior or are you, no, I'm, I'm really wondering, like, are you being, I bet. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> trying to think of your field and I'm like, well, Man, yeah. Dave's just um, lobbing grenades today. Who cares what yeah. happens? Yeah. I mean, it, it's not technically against the law, but I would posit that their fundamental product that they offer is a criminal enterprise. Oh, well, it's, okay. po- it's poisoning. People. Before we were recording, you mentioned they were contract killers. That was their profession. So that's kind of complicated. <laughs> and I think that might've been compassion fatigue, but no. Uh, um, so, so every single day, you know, we, we were just trying to stop the, the ship from sinking and the ship was going to sink, you know, Eventually, probably, but we're just every day we're just bailing out a little bit more water, trying to keep it afloat one more day. And we put in so much work to get to this baseline, right? And no one appreciated that baseline, right? Nobody, like other people were sailing, you know, amazing yachts around the ocean. And, and, you know, we're like, we're spending a lot more of our time and energy trying to keep this little dinghy afloat, but that's not as impressive as the yacht that's just kind of cruising along. Right. So, we, you know, it was, it was really thankless and there was so much, every conversation was negative with the client because they were awful with the people that, you know, within our firm, because they're in the same boat, <laughs> get it. Yep. Um, trying to, you know, every, every conversation was just negative. And after, you know, a couple of years of that, I remember specifically it was around, around the holidays and I, you know, I, I was I was kind of pushing this project um, that was actually going to make some headway and I was kind of excited about it. And then when I finally got kind of towards the end, uh, one of my managers kind of pointed out that, hey, look, if you do this, this really negative thing is going to happen. Um, which he was right and I just didn't see it. And I was kind of beating myself up about that. But really, I was just like, I, something snapped in me like right when that happened and I remember we went out to dinner that night and I just uh, very uncharacteristically just, I was, I was just not having it. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it was just like, this is so pointless. If you're <laughs> not having it in that moment. How did that manifest? Like, were you short with people? Were you really tired? Tired and just like staring at the wall. Yeah. Which is just very unlike me. I, you know, I, I can be in a terrible mood and then I go out to dinner with, because I, I really like all these people that I was out to dinner with. Sure, like that, sure. That should, pu- that's, that's like my happy place. That should pull me out of any kind of funk. Yeah. And I was just there like, I hate all of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, and I see you didn't actually, like stand up and flip over a table and, you know, start berating the client or anything. That's a good thing, but, at least. 
But that's also just not my personality. Yeah. If it was, I'm sure that would have happened. I'm just not naturally like that aggressive, angry person. My shutdown is like, I just kind of go inside. Mm. I think it's going to, it's going to amplify, like whatever your coping mechanisms are, yeah. it, it might get amplified in, in the throes of burnout. I mean, I totally. started bawling on a bus at like 3 p.m. to the point where, and it's in a major city and, and a stranger was like, are you okay? Which I don't know that I would do that to a stranger in Chicago. It's just, okay. I mean, in a major city, but yeah. And, and I'm not someone who cries in public a lot. I mean... I don't know, Nora Ephron film, sure. But like, I mean, (laughs) but I was just, I was weeping so hard and like, like ridiculously. And then, and I went home and I was like, that's fine. And then I think it was weeks later before I was like, that's abnormal behavior. And I mean, that was abnormal behavior for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I didn't, I, I actually ended up taking a, you know, short leave, not, well, three to four month leave of absence but not until six months after that date but like if i'm looking back on now that was the date that i just like i stopped deriving any joy from anything that i was doing professionally Mm. you know i i spoke to you in the the midst of that break and i guess in the midst of you know the the wake of the burnout and you didn't really know how to characterize it when we first talked about it you were just like i just um uh i'm not i'm not at work right now it was, yeah. it was, yeah. and I was like, okay. And I, I clarified and you kind of went more into it, but I didn't know nearly as much about it as I do now because yeah. it's really, it's an amorphous kind of, or it's seemingly amorphous and our inability to like inherently name it while it's happening, mm-hmm. I think is the source of a lot of, uh, of, I don't know, suffering uh, and people and, and not even people just working in helping professions, obviously, but if we're all kind of, you know, if there's this cyclical thing of, okay, we see tragedy on television and then people hit us up for money because of all the tragedy. And so they show us more tragic imagery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we already don't have the money to put toward that. And so then we're just like, well, we're, I'm not helping enough. And then it all starts over again the next day at a certain point. I mean, I don't really buy into like the desensitized, desensitized to violence thing as someone who plays extremely violent video games i'm still i still abhor real life violence but i it's not like if i watch a tragic movie it's still tragic but sort of the passive nature of witnessing tragedy every day it can't be good for us Mm. but closing yourself off from it isn't good either so we as a nation or world have to have better coping mechanisms or just have to stop talking about it i I guess no i think a big part of it is that um so all of our burnouts now two of us burned out for other reasons it sounds like your burnout lindsay was centered around compassion fatigue more so um having said that all of our burnouts were visited upon us when we were inside of a system that was asking too much of us maybe i mean that's at least how i view what my burnout was about i couldn't cope with the stress of the expectation that was being put on me and the fact that it just seemed like it was it was impossible you know i mean so like insight into my burnout i was making let's say 80 phone calls a day and it was a good day mm-hmm. if one of those phone calls was a, a sale that was a that was like a good mm-hmm. that was an okay day and a good day would have been two of those phone calls were a sale and so anyone that's ever worked in a you know a call center essentially knows this feeling this like wow if i'm only 5% effective it's a really good day and that's just that level of dread stepping into the office every day 
day over day, week over week, month over month. I think when that system just plays on you so hard for so long, that prolonged stress really leads to that burnout where you just break, where you can't bend anymore, you just give up. And I think that's where being a manager must be the hardest thing is like, how do you manage personnel in a high stress job? Like, let's say a nurse, like we all know that we need nurses. You know, it's not like a sales, like for me, I was selling advertising. We could probably all agree that if there's one less person selling advertising, the world probably wouldn't be like a worse place for it. If there's one less <laughs> nurse in the world, actually that might not be great for the world, right? So like, no, if you're a nursing shortage. So if you're managing people who are in these situations, like how do you, how do you try and help your team cope for that? You know, how do you prepare people for this? I mean, don't, I, I feel like I don't know the answer, right? Um, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, the, the non-helping professions, um, I, I think, I don't want to say that it's new, but I think to the, to the extent or, or maybe with the, the numbers that are happening today, that's new, you know, working, uh, job as a businessman used to be a nine to five job and you'd have five martinis every day at lunch. Mm-hmm. Like that was a great, that was a great time. Then you'd go take a nap. But like, you know, now that, that kind of, that world is producing a lot of burnout because of a number of factors that we've talked about before and we'll talk about again. Um, but I think the, the business world is kind of struggling to kind of understand that. Um, but there's also, you know, like if I think about the, about the medical profession, I mean, how long has the medical profession been around? How did I, I, I feel like they would be the best people to learn from because clearly they've done something to figure this out. They just had, have had a longer time as a, as an industry, as a function, you know, doctors, I don't know nurses. About that. I know? mean, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Dave, you're not wrong in that like the medical field would be the best place to look for it. But also, I don't know. I mean, Ryan will know, but I don't know how much time you've spent around nurses and nursing, but they drink like they don't want to live. <laughs> like everyone I know mm-hmm. in a helping profession, including my time in vet med is we are coping mechanisms. I mean, at the time, like I was in my 20s and so it wasn't so problematic for us all to go out and just go crazy but it was definitely a coping mechanism Hmm. and I also kind of had an interesting like intersection of this where I was a manager of a team that I mean kind of with what you were saying Dave where you you had the task to like rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic knowing what was going to happen stuck with that maritime uh uh, analogy um where we had a I, I was managing a team who I knew weren't being treated great kind of because they were the lowest rung at the animal hospital and I knew that some of them were coping with starting this job and I I remember having to have a really kind of blunt conversation with three new assistants they're veterinary assistants so they're kind of like kennel they're like orderlies in a hospital basically and I had to explain to them that this is a job in which you cannot lie and two of them were coming from the service industry and I was like hey I get it being a good server means lying being good at lying sure I'll Mm -hmm. ask the chef if he can do that for you I'm not gonna ask the (laughs) chef but but in in vet med I was like if you know the incident sprung from someone didn't give a dog a seizure medication and then lied about it and it was 
And I had to explain, like, the problem is that you lied about it. It's not that you didn't give the seizure medication. Also bad. But mm-hmm. once we know, then we just, we cope with it. And I was trying to impress upon them how important it was without scaring them and them quitting because the quitting you know the the what would it be called like the casualty rate of turnover turnover Turnover. thank you turnover the turnover the turnover of new assistants is really high because it's such an intense job and so i was trying to do that and then right around that time i got sick and like actually and i i was in the hospital for like a week and a half and i was kind of in the throes of burnout definitely in the throes of compassion fatigue and i experienced withdrawal from work because my burnout was yeah crying on a bus but also it was all I did was work I took every double I could I worked as much as I could and I didn't do anything else and at the time I was in a long distance relationship and he'd call me and I just wouldn't want to talk about my day at all which sure. wasn't great yeah <laughs> it'd be like what happened today and I'm like I don't want to talk about it I just uh, uh I don't know I, I took the bus and then I came home on the bus and it's I don't want to tell you what happened in between those two bus rides So I was in the hospital. I couldn't stand not being at work. And I got transferred to a hospital. I was getting processed by a doctor. And the doctor was so short with me. And I was so mad. And he kept kept getting called away for codes. And I mean, it helps that my mom's a nurse. So I knew what was going on. But him and his like assistant kept leaving and coming back looking more beaten down. And I was just upset because I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what was going on. And then the third time he came back, there was blood on his scrubs and his assistant had changed his, her scrubs. And mm. I was looking at them and they were they were being mean to me. Don't get me wrong. They were being mean and I was scared and they weren't showing a whole lot of compassion. But after that, I was like, oh, we're experiencing the same thing that like he's being mean because he just dealt if he dealt with a code and came back with different scrubs he just had something awful happen and that doesn't mean someone died but it means something awful happened and now he has to come into this 27 year old being like meh i don't know what's wrong with me but i want you to let me eat again like i don't know (laughs) stuff like that sure and so i kind of had to be the grown-up in this situation with like a whole real grown-up who had a doctor job (laughs) but uh it was it was kind of a moment of like, oh, wow. And I can't stop checking my phone. It's kind of hard to work from home at an animal hospital. <laughs> There's not a whole lot you can do. Um, so I was just, it was kind of a moment of clarity of like, wow, we are two people not communicating correctly. And that was by the graces of me knowing what was going on with this guy. Cause I had a, a seminar where a lady made me cry about a, a fake dog. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so I stopped being so obstinate and I just let him, you know, do the intake and it was fine. But how many people are having interactions like that and don't know that both of the people are hurting or one of the person people is hurting. The other one doesn't feel heard. And, and it's just kind of a lot of confusion. You know, I I think about that in the medical field, like they're not teaching the doctors in medical school. I can't imagine they're teaching them enough about how not to cry when you get home or how not to come home with it. I'm sure they're doing more, but it couldn't be enough, you know, especially Mm -hmm. for now. Sure. Hmm. I mean, so that was one thing. So one opportunity that really helped me when I was going through my burnout phase was the company I worked for, they offered access to a therapy service. Um, and it was amazing how helpful it was just to have a therapist who I could reach out to. Uh, pretty, It was, it was a, um, I didn't have one single therapist. It re- literally was a service. So I had a case of, or I had uh, three people assigned to my case, so to speak. It's this whole wow. system that was set up. So it was like 24-7. If I ever wanted to get in touch with someone, typically it was like via a text platform. Um, 
having the ability to reference or to try and explain what's happening to you to someone who's professionally trained to deal with that experience, it was incredibly helpful for me. Um, not yeah. to say that it got any easier. If In some ways, it actually got harder because the therapist is like, you need to challenge yourself in these ways because this is your problem that you need to overcome and that's why you are feeling the way you right. are. The therapist wasn't that assertive. They were a little bit more like, I think this is what's happening. But talking to someone, especially a professional whose job is to listen to people suffer through life, I think that was helpful for me. Did either of you kind of have something like that, you know, beyond just friends, family, like so, like a professional who actually helps you think about your life. Yeah. I mean, and I, I actually, um, I, I started seeing a therapist probably maybe six to 12 months before my whole burnout thing. And it was for like the, the reason at the time was nothing to do with the professional professional world and it really wasn't even that big of a concern but I, I, I'd never gone to a therapist before and at that uh, but but I just I'd really come to believe for a number of reasons that like therapy is something that that everybody should do as part of maintenance work like it can absolutely help for acute situations and that's how a lot of people will like start to do that <clears throat> but it's so like I have I have seen you know my therapist once a week for the last, you know, two years. And there have been, you know, stretches of times where he's, you know, like, Hey, what's going on? Like, everything's awesome. Cool. Like, but, but the, the benefit and you hit it right on the head, Ryan is it is so unbelievably helpful to just talk out loud to another human being about what's going on in your head. And I know that sounds maybe silly to somebody who's never done it before, but when you are in your own head, like you are so easily deluded by yourself. And I think that is one of the, I think the reason why people struggle with things like burnout for a long time before they really hit the wall is that you really you start to do some weird compartmentalization type of things. Your, your brain kind of uses a lot of defense mechanisms that you don't really quite understand to, to help mitigate this before you realize what's going on. So Lindsay, you were saying, you know, you had like, you took the bus, you know, somewhere in the morning and then you rode the bus home at night, but you don't want to talk about what happened, you know, in between those two things. Well, that's like not good. (laughs) Um, what? But, but uh, wait, okay. But we're talking about it right now, and all three of us are thinking, "Yeah, of course." But y- when you're not talking about that with somebody, you can justify that in your head. And I justified the stuff that I was going through in my head yeah. all the time. And then I go to therapy and I say it out loud, and you come to that realization yourself because you're saying it out loud to another human being. And as you're saying it, you're thinking, "Wow, Dave, really?" <laughs> Sometimes therapy feels like it works because it would feel silly to talk to a brick wall. <laughs> like, because like if you talk it out, you're going to work through it. And obviously that's not all of it. I mean, I had a therapist give me a, like a coping mechanism that I kind of doubted, but ended up really working. I used to see 
people with overweight dogs. So this is dumb, but <laughs> like, so I worked for a really wealthy hospital, not the hospital itself, but the clientele were really wealthy. So you don't deal with as much direct neglect. And so, but you deal with a lot of overweight pets and pets that are just like having a worse life because they're fat. And, and bow, bow, bow. <laughs> that's what I'm picturing. Just I've a bunch never of seen fat dogs. Enthusiasm. That can be a whole other thing. But um, <laughs> so I would see um, overweight dogs and I would I would get angry because because so many dogs like these very wealthy people would have these dogs that would be fat. And I'd just be like, your dog is going to die 10 percent or more earlier because you want to give it like whatever food you want. And I would get so mad. And my therapist, this it's so funny to think that this is the origin story because I use this all the time of if I witness something that I just like I am feeling too much about like just feeling too many things about is I have to make like five a list of five things that might not be the case so if I you know like mm. if I'm I live in Chicago again so if, if every time I saw a homeless person I was like miserable that wouldn't work but if I seem like witness something terrible or hear about something awful I have to say like okay maybe that person went home and you know got to watch Kirby Enthusiasm with their parents or maybe that dog doesn't realize it's not supposed to be fat and had a great day <laughs> you know like and it really worked sure. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so like mm -hmm. half the time I would be yeah talking to a therapist who was like so that's abnormal behavior and I'd be like huh what I don't understand what you mean <laughs> and then the other half of the time was like okay well let's think of something that isn't like just doom scrolling which is what you do on the bus on the way home from this yeah. job that's making you yeah. cry yeah. but I mean therapy I mean, in contrast for you having your first therapist two years ago, I've had roughly 5,000 therapists <laughs> in, in my life Give on this earth. Like if there was a Tinder for therapists, it'd be great for me. But, um, and, but out of necessity, I mean, you got to find the right fit, but also like I, I got attacked when I worked at the animal hospital by a dog and I, I think it's probably obvious. I really like dogs, but afterward I was scared of dogs and did not know I was scared of dogs. I was just like, sometimes I start panicking at the dog park. That's probably not great. And my therapist was like, well, uh, you have PTSD. And I was like, no, that's something soldiers get and like victims of crimes. And she was like, well, what's happening? I was like, I don't know. Sometimes I just really get scared and can't breathe when I'm around certain dogs. And she was like, okay, it's almost like a stressful event happened. And in the aftermath, you have a sort of disordered way of dealing with it. And I was like, all right, I'm at Jen. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like, that's what it is. But prior to that, I had just been throwing myself at every aggressive dog, trying to trick myself out of being scared of them. That oh, wasn't working. So yeah, you, it wasn't you almost like, like <laughs> rose up to the challenge, like, no, I can beat this. Yeah, but the scareder you get around a dog, the scareder they will get. This is some good English here. They they can sense when you're freaked out. Like people are like, "Oh, my dog knew that guy was creepy." It's like, "No, you did." And your dog was like, "Well, my owner's being really weird around the guy with the mustache." Like that's right. you. That's not your yeah. dogs aren't psychic. I don't know where this this narrative came out of. But that was an important thing to do. And like whether it's like a helping profession or I mean, Jesus, stop swearing. Sorry. I mean, gosh darn, Ryan, what job <laughs> did you have where you had a 24 hour crisis therapy line? Like that must have, it was they a tech must company. have known again. So a it was major a tech company, tech that, company. Everyone would know. I remember Ryan when he was in this and, and honestly, right. I don't know if I ever like, I mean, I expected you to be way more upset and burned out than you were. Cause I knew what you were going through at that job, but you seemed to, 
take it in stride. Yeah, you didn't live with But I think me. you also have a very... My wife has a very different perspective on that period of my life. And you also have a very just generally stoic way of dealing with anything. Yep. Mm-hmm. Stiff upper lip. Yep. I might as well be British, apparently. I mean, I just can't imagine, like, that job, they must have known they were just, like, putting you through the ringer, where it's like, oh, Ryan, no, Ryan's no, no. crying so in his cubicle, give him the number. understood like, from the top down. I mean, to put it into perspective, I started on a team of 12 people. By six months into the job, I was one of six people left. Yeah. And that wasn't atypical. It's just kind of the standard of the organization. Yeah, and it's If a- there's anyone listening who's ever been in a call center, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the same... No matter how fancy the company is and how good like the coffee shop in your office is, if you're at a big fancy tech firm like I was, it's still miserable work. 